Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Good evening, everybody. All right. Favorite. My father was a judge. I never was, so I'll live vicariously with a gavel, and I will officially gavel in and welcome all of you to the evening's event at the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you already know you are in the know. Uh, you can find the Commonwealth Club on the internet at commonwealthclub.org. I am Gavin Newsom, Lieutenant Governor. Great state of California, and I'm your moderator for today's program. It's my pleasure to introduce today's special guest, Thomas Freeman, the three-time Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times columnist and reporter, the author of six best-selling books, including The Lexus and the Olive Tree, The World is Flat, and his newest work, Thank You for Being Late, an Optimist Guide to Thriving in the Age of Accelerations. Ladies and gentlemen, A big round of applause for Thomas Friedman. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, It's a treat to be back in this great theater. Gavin, thank you so much. Um, uh, Gavin and I have been friends since he's been mayor, one of my favorite leaders in the country, and so it's a treat to be introduced by him. Um, and this is really one of my favorite venues. Uh, this is such a good book town. So I'm on my book tour now, and it's a, it's a real treat to be here with you. Um, I am going to talk tonight about my newest book, Thank You for Being Late, An Optimist Guide to Thriving in the Age of Accelerations. Uh, the first question I always get, of course, is um, what's the title? <laughs> um, uh, what, what is that about? Um, and the title actually... Uh, uh, just came out of me one day. I live in Washington, D.C., and uh, I don't like to waste breakfast by eating alone. And uh, so I like to meet with people who I can learn from, so I often have breakfast downtown, and every once in a while, somebody comes 10, 15, 20 minutes late. And they say, Tom, I'm really sorry. This is the weather, the traffic, the subway, the dog ate my homework. And um, about three years ago, uh, my friend Peter Corsell uh, came late and was spilling out apologies, and And I just spontaneously said to him, "Um, you know, Peter, actually, thank you for being late. Because you were late, I've been eavesdropping on their conversation. (laughs) Fascinating. I've been people watching the lobby. Fantastic. And most importantly, I just connected two ideas I've been struggling with for a month. So thank you for being late. People started to get into it. They'd say, well, well, you're welcome, Um, because they understood I was actually giving them permission to pause, to slow down, to reflect. In fact, my favorite quote in the beginning of the book is from my friend Dove Seidman, who says, you know, when you press the pause button 
On a computer, it stops. But when you press the pause button on a human being, it starts. It starts to reflect, reimagine, and relearn. And boy do, we knew, boy, do we need to do a lot of that right now. So the book, I have to confess, began with a complete accident when I paused to engage with someone I normally wouldn't. I live in Bethesda, Maryland, and I take the subway to work uh, about once a week when it's running. Um, and uh, <laughs> lately it's been very up and down. And for me that means driving from my home on uh, Bradley Boulevard in Bethesda to the Bethesda Hyatt, and I park in the underground parking garage, public parking garage there, and I take the red line into DC where the New York Times has a bureau. And I did that some almost three years ago now. I went into DC, um, uh, went to the office, came back, red line, got my car, timestamp ticket, drove to the cashier's booth, gave the guy my ticket, and he said, I know who you are. <laughs> I said, great. Um, he said, I read your column. I said, great. He said, I don't always agree. I thought, get me out of here. Um, <laughs> But I said, uh, well, that's great because it means, means you have to check. And I drove off. And I thought, you know, that's nice that the car guy reads my column. Uh, a week later, I took my weekly subway trip, parked the car, red line, DC, back, car, timestamp ticket, same guys in the cashier booth. <laughs> this time he says, Mr. Friedman, I have my own blog. Would you read my blog? I thought, oh my God, the parking guy is now my competitor. What just happened? So I said, well, write it down for me and I'll look it up. Uh, and he wrote down on a piece of receipt paper, odenambi.com. And I kept it on the seat and I drove home. As soon as I got home, I looked it up on my computer. Uh, he was Ethiopian. He wrote about uh, Ethiopian politics. Um, it was a very very solid website, uh, and he clearly wrote from a very heartfelt uh, democracy point of view. He's from the Oromo people, and a lot of it um, had to do with um, their own role in the future of a democratic Ethiopia. I thought about him for a couple days, I told my wife, and I decided this was a sign from God. I should pause and engage this guy. But I didn't have his email, and so the only way I could do that was park in the parking garage every day. <laughs> So I kept parking in the parking garage, and it took a few days, and we finally overlapped again. And I stopped my car under the gate, and I knew his name now, Eli. I said, Eli, I like your email. I want to send you a message. And he, got, he gave it to me, and that night I sent him a message. I repeat our messages in the front of the book. Some of them are funny. Uh, and I basically said, I have a proposition for you. I'm ready to teach you how to write a column, if you will tell me your life story. And he basically said, I see you're proposing a deal I like this deal. <laughs> so he asked that we uh, meet near his uh, work office at Pete's Coffee House in Bethesda. And I was traveling at the time and I came back and um, we, we did that and I prepared for him a six page memo on how to write a column. And, uh, and he told me his life story and it's a great story. He's um, uh, a student of economics at Haile Selassie University in Ethiopia. Um, uh, and he was blogging on Ethiopian websites but they were too slow. And therefore, he decided to start his own blog. And now, Mr. Friedman, I feel empowered. Uh, his Google metrics say he's read in 30 countries. This is my parking guy. 
And, um, and it's a wonderful story. And um, he's a wonderful man. And I'm glad I paused to engage him. Well, I then shared with him how to write a column, or how I write a column, because everyone does it differently. And you know, if the world is a big data set, what I'm about to share with you is my algorithm. This is how I go about organizing it. So a news story is meant to inform. If I write a news story about Gavin's day-to-day in California, he'd say, you inform better or worse, Tom. But a column, an opinion piece, is meant to provoke. It's meant to produce a reaction. So I'm either in the heating business or the lighting business. That's what I do, okay? I'm either stoking up an emotion inside of you, or I'm illuminating something for you, and ideally, when you really get it right, you do both, and you produce a reaction. Now, to produce a reaction uh, actually is an act of chemistry. You have to combine three compounds. Uh, The first is, what is your value set? What do you stand for? Are you a conservative, a liberal, a Republican? Are you a neocon, a neoliberal, a libertarian? Are you a Keynesian or a Marxist? What is the value set you as an opinion writer are trying to promote? Second, how do you think the machine works? So the machine is my shorthand for what are the biggest forces shaping more things in more places in more ways on more days? Because as a columnist, what I'm actually trying to do every week is to take my value set and push the machine in that direction. But if I don't know how the machine works, I either won't push it or I'll push it in the wrong direction. And lastly, what have you learned about people and culture? Because there's no column without people and there's no people without culture. How they affect the machine when it moves and how the machine affects them. Mix them all together, stir, let it rise, bake for 45 minutes. And if you do it right, you will produce either heat or light. And you'll know that by the reaction you'll get from readers. Some will say, I I didn't know that. It's a good reaction. Some will say, I never looked at it that way. Thank you, that's a good reaction. Some will say, I never connected those things. That's a good reaction. Your favorite, you live for this, it happens four times a year, you said exactly what I felt, but didn't know how to say, God God bless you. I want to kill you dead, you and all your offspring, that's a reaction I get. Um, (laughs) But all of those tell you that you've produced either heat or light. Well, the more I tutored Ayile, we did, uh, I think, three sessions all together at Pete's Coffee House, and I sent him memos back and forth. The more I sat back and started to think to myself, well, If that's what a column is, what's my value set? What what have I been promoting all these years? And for those of you who read me, you know that I'm I'm not quite a liberal, and I'm not certainly not a conservative. I'm something in between, and that's because my politics actually comes not from any books of philosophy, but it grows out of the time and place I grew up in Minnesota, a time and a place where politics worked. And so I wanted to explore that a little. And I wanted to explore how I think the machine works today. And I wanted to explore what I've learned over 40 years about people and culture. And so I decided that was the book I wanted to write. And that's what this book is about. So let me just walk you through it briefly. The first part is about the machine. How does the machine work today? And my argument is what is shaping more things in more places in more ways and more days, is that we are in the middle of three nonlinear accelerations all at the same time, 
with the three largest forces on the planet, which I call the market, Mother Nature, and Moore's Law. So Moore's Law is a proxy for a technology coined by Gordon Moore, the co-founder of Intel in 1965, it's held up ever since, that the speed and power of microchips will double roughly every 24 months. It's now up closer to 30 months, never mind, but if you put Moore's Law on a graph, it looks like a hockey stick. The market for me is digital globalization. Not your grandfather's globalization, containers on ships, that's actually been going down. But everything that's now being digitized and globalized, whether it's Facebook or PayPal or uh, 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 Twitter, all of these MOOCs, everything is now being digitized and globalized. And that's actually what's driving globalization today. And if you put it on a graph, it looks like a hockey stick. And Mother Nature for me is biodiversity loss, climate change, and uh, population growth in the developing world. You put that on a graph, it looks like a hockey stick. We're actually in the middle of three hockey stick accelerations, all at the same time, in the three largest forces on the planet, the market, Mother Nature, and Moore's Law. And they're all interacting with each other. More Moore's Law, more technology drives more globalization, more globalization drives more climate change, and more solutions, potentially. But these accelerations aren't just changing our world. They're actually reshaping it. And they're reshaping five realms in particular. The workplace, we all know that. Politics, we can see that. Geopolitics, we can see that. Uh, ethics, we don't always see that, but I'll explain that a little later. And lastly, community. And the front half of the book is about the accelerations, and the back half is how I reimagine these five realms. So let's talk a little bit about how the machine works, and I'll just focus on the Moore's Law dimension. And that chapter in the book, I'm just going to get my little clicker here, um, is called, What the Hell Happened in 2007? 2007? Sounds like such an innocuous year. What's this guy talking about? Well, here's what happened in 2007. It started here in this city at the Moscone Center. Steve Jobs, January 2007, unveiled the iPhone beginning a process by which we are now gradually putting a handheld computer connected to the internet and the cloud into the hands of every person on the planet. Well, that's not all that happened in 2007. 2007, a company down the road called Facebook, actually late 2006, opened itself to anyone with a registered email address. It had been confined before that to high schools and universities, and it went global. Uh, 2000, Six, a company down the street here called Twitter opened its doors, and in 2007, it went global. In 2007, the most important software platform you've never heard of, although it's based right around here, called Hadoop, named after its founder's son, Toy Elephant, opened its doors. Hadoop created an open source software platform that basically enabled us to connect a million computers so they could all act as one. And it helped us really create the foundation for big data. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. 
Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. In 2007, a company called GitHub, also around the corner here, opened its doors. Now the world's biggest repository of open source software. In 2007, uh, in, in 2007, a company called Google gave us an operating system called Android. In 2007, this company called Google also bought a little-known TV station or online network called YouTube. In uh, 2007, in the town I was in yesterday, Seattle, this guy named Jeff Bezos came out with the first ebook reader called the Kindle. In 2007, IBM started the world's first cognitive computer called Watson. In 2007, three guys, not far from here again, who were attending the design conference in San Francisco that year, decided to rent out their spare air mattresses for some people who wanted to attend but couldn't get a room at a hotel. And they started in 2007 a company called Airbnb. Uh, in 2007, this graph up here, kind of interesting, this is the cost of uh, sequencing a human genome. Uh, in 2001, it was $100 million. Uh, then you'll notice it goes over a cliff. And it goes, if you trace your finger straight down, uh, the year is 2007. Goes down to $1,200, uh, basically, today. Uh, in 2007, solar power took off. And in 2007, a process for extracting very natural gas from very tight shale called fracking began at scale. In 2007, this is a graph. The white line going down, that's the cost of generating a megabit of data. Um, this is really a graph that reflects social networks. The blue line ascending is the speed at which you could transmit it. The two lines cross in 2008. Close enough for government work. That's what Moore's Law looks like. So in 2007, 
Intel, oh, also, I always forget, I always forget this. In 2007, the cloud was born. Um, the first year it shows up statistically at $5.8 billion in revenues is 2008. It was born in 2007. So, and in 2007, Intel, for the first time, went off, went off silicon to extend Moore's law. They introduced non-silicon materials into their transistors. Turns out, friends, 2007 may be seen in time as the single greatest technological inflection point since Gutenberg invented the printing press. And we completely missed it because of 2008. So right when our physical technologies just took off, like we were on a moving sidewalk in an airport that suddenly went from five miles an hour to 35 miles an hour, so many of the social technologies we needed to go along with that, to cushion the worst and get the best, the regulatory reform, the social reform, the managerial reform, the learning methods, and our political system basically seized up as we went into the deepest recession we've had since 1929. That's what happened between 2007 and 2008. There was a huge dislocation. Our physical technologies leapt ahead and politics didn't catch up and we are still living with that dislocation. My friend Astro Teller at Google X, who runs Google X, I was out talking to Astro one day and we were talking about this and he just went over to his whiteboard and he drew this crude illustration of where we are. Uh, that blue line across the middle, he said, that's the average rate at which human beings and societies adapt to change over time. It has a slightly positive slope, but it's very gradual. The white line is technology. So if you lived on the left side of that line in the 11th century or the 12th century, actually your life didn't change at all. Yeah, there was a time, a long time, where Nothing changed over a century. And then we got Galileo and Copernicus and eventually Intel and chips and the line starts to go straight north. And then, then Astro drew a little diamond there and a little arrow and he said, we are here. We're now living basically at a, at a time and in a place where the change in the pace of change now is so fast that average societies and citizens can't keep up. Then he went over and got another little piece of magic marker, and he drew that dotted line there. And the dotted line he labeled learning faster and governing smarter. And that is our challenge now. How do we lift that adaptation line so more people can live at this rate of change? So how did all this happen? Uh, basically, what I argue in the book is that the uh, the computer basically is made up of five parts. The CPU, the microprocessor, the storage chip, the networking, the software, and the sensor. And I kind of tell the history of all five. And what happened in a sense is they were all in a Moore's Law and they all melded together in 2007 into this thing we call the cloud. The cloud. But I don't use the word the cloud in my book because it sounds so soft. So fluffy, so benign. It sounds like a Joni Mitchell song. I've looked at clouds from both. This ain't no cloud, folks. This is a supernova. 
This supernova is the largest force in nature. It's the explosion of a star. Only this is an ever-expanding and strengthening explosion. And it's now really the center. It's now really the center of our economic life. I mean, where did you want to build your town in the Middle Ages? You wanted to build it on a river because that river brought you nourishment, it brought you transport, it brought you ideas, and it brought you power. You wanted to build your town on the Amazon. Where do you want to build your town today? On (laughs) Amazon.com. You want to build it on the flows coming off the supernova because what they're doing is changing four kinds of power. And that's what's reshaping the world. They've changed the power of one. Oh my goodness, what one person can do now is staggering. We have a president-elect who can sit in his penthouse and tweet to hundreds of millions of people without any filter or any editor. If that isn't scary enough, though, the, the head of ISIS can do the same thing from Raqqa province. We've changed the power of one. We've changed the power of machines. Machines can now think they have all five senses. We, we learned that for the first time on, of all places, a game show. February 14th, 2011, there were three contestants. Two were the all-time Jeopardy champions, and the third just went by his last name, Mr. Watson. Mr. Watson passed on the first question. But he buzzed in before the two human beings on the second question. And the question was, it's worn on the foot of a horse and used by a dealer in a casino. And in under 2.5 seconds, Watson, in perfect Jeopardy style, said, what is shoe? And for the first time, a computer figured out a pun faster than the two all-time Jeopardy champions. world kind of hasn't been the same since. Uh, It's changed the power of flows. Ideas now flow and change at a rate we've never seen before. Barack Obama, five years ago, said marriage was between a man and a woman. Today, blessedly so, he says marriage is between any two human beings who love each other. And he followed Ireland in that position. Think how fast these things are changing. And lastly, it's changed the power of many. Because of our amplified powers, we as a collective are now a force of and in nature. In fact, this geophysical era is being named after us, the Anthropocene. So what these new powers are doing is reshaping politics, geopolitics, ethics, the community, and the workplace. So let me talk a little bit about those before we go to questions. So my chapter on the workplace, how it's being reshaped, is called How We Turn AI into IA. How do we turn artificial intelligence into intelligent assistance, A-N-C-E, intelligent assistance, A-N-T-S, and intelligent algorithms so more and more people can learn faster, govern smarter, and live at this pace of change? So let me give you an example of all three. My example of intelligent assistance is the Human Resources Department at AT AT&T, where I, I spent some time in writing this book. So AT&T, 360,000 employees, they wake up every morning living right on the edge of the supernova. They compete with Verizon and Sprint and T-Mobile, hyper-competitive environment. So their HR policies, in a nutshell, I would describe it like this. They begin every year with their CEO, Randall Stevenson, giving a radically transparent speech about 
how they see their world, how they see their competition, and what skills you're going to need to be an employee that year at AT AT&T. Then they put every AT&T employee on their own in-house LinkedIn system. So they've got, they've got Gavin Newsom there, Gavin, Gavin Newsom. They determined that there are 10 skills you're going to need to be an employee at AT&T today. And they come to Gavin and they say, Gavin, you've got seven of the 10, but you're missing three. But here's the good news. We just partnered with Sebastian Thrun from Audacity uh, to create nano degrees for all 10. And we will give you, Gavin, $8,500 a year to take those courses. There's just one condition. You have to take them on your own time. If Gavin says, you know, I've actually just climbed up one too many telephone poles. I don't want to do this anymore. AT&T now has a wonderful severance package for Gavin. But Gavin will not be working at AT AT&T. Their new bargain with him is that If he is ready to take those courses, they are ready to ensure that he'll get the first crack when new jobs open. They won't go outside. That's their bargain. And the underlying message coming to a neighborhood near you is that you can be a lifelong employee at AT AT&T, but only if you're ready to be a lifelong learner. That is the new social contract. And their program is intelligent assistance to enable their employees to do that. Intelligent assistance, A-N-T-S, the example I use is Qualcomm. Um, They took a bunch of their buildings on their 64-building campus in San Diego, and they put sensors on everything. Every door, window, faucet, drain, uh, light bulb, computer, HVAC system, they got sensors on everything. They beam all the data up to the supernova, and then they beam it down on an incredibly user-friendly iPad for their janitors. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody and that's just kind of the attitude and the the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, could I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that uh, gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time. So you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude, um, just to entertain people. And so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. 
and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. The janitors can swipe down. They know if somebody leaves their computer on, if a light bulb goes out, if a pipe bursts, they know it immediately. They swipe down. They've got who to call. They've got the instruction manual there. Their janitors have become maintenance technologists. They now give tours to foreign visitors. Think what that does to the dignity of a janitor because he's got an intelligent assistant or she's got an intelligent assistant to help them live above the line. Intelligent algorithm, uh, the example I use is the partnership between the College Board and Khan Academy, the online learning platform. So you know the story when your kids have to take the PSAT exam in 11th grade and the SAT in 12th grade, and if you're neurotic parents like we were, you know, you go out and you hire a tutor, uh, 200 bucks a shot um, to up your kids' verbal or math scores. A completely rigged game, okay? Uh, Because if you're from an underprivileged family or neighborhood, you may not even know about this trick, and if you do, you can't afford it. A completely rigged game. So two years ago, the college board that administers the SATs and Khan Academy created a platform for free online SAT and PSAT college prep. Now my friend Gavin in 11th grade takes the SAT, PSAT exam. He gets the results back and they say, Gavin, Gavin, you did very well on math, but you have a problem with fractions and right angles. It then takes him to a practice site just devoted to fractions and right angles, his exact weakness. If he does well there, it takes him to another site offering college scholarships and another site that says, Gavin, have you ever heard of AP Math? Because maybe no one in your family or neighborhood has ever been in AP Math. You could actually take AP Math. It has another line to connect him with Boys and Girls Clubs of America, which are now providing coaches for these young people. That is an intelligent algorithm, and last year, two million American kids participated in it. You would know nothing about intelligent assistance, intelligent assistance, or intelligent algorithms if you just followed our presidential election campaign. (laughs) This would all be shocking news to you, okay? Uh, Bernie Sanders' big idea was to take apart the banks, Uh, Donald Trump's big idea was to take apart Hillary Clinton, and Hillary Clinton's big idea was to direct you to her website, okay? But in fact, there is massive innovation going on in the workplace, in communities, to actually help people live above the line. It just needs to be scaled and shared. Let me talk a little bit about how politics excuse me, how politics is being reshaped. You don't need it, I got it. How politics is being reshaped. Um, I believe that we're going through right now, not one, but three climate changes at once. We're going through a change in the climate. We're going through a change in the climate of technology. And we're going through a change in the climate of globalization. We're actually going through three climate changes at once. What do you want when the climate changes? 
You want two things. You want resilience, because you need to be able to take a blow. It can be very disruptive. But you also want propulsion. You want to be able to move ahead. You don't want to be curled up in a ball hiding under your bed. So I sat back and I thought, who can I go to to tutor me on how you build resilience and propulsion when the climate changes? And then I realized I know a woman who's 3.8 billion years old. Her name's Mother Nature, and she's dealt with more climate changes than anybody. So I invited her for an interview. I sat her down, and I said, Mother Nature, what are your secrets for basically producing resilience and propulsion when the climate changes? She said, well, Tom, uh, first of all, I do all this unconsciously, but um, I'm incredibly adaptive uh, in a brutal way through natural selection. My rule is only the adaptive survive. Uh, second, she said, I love diversity. I love pluralism. Try 20 different species, see who wins. My most diverse ecosystems are my most resilient ones. Third, she says, I am very sustainable in a very circular way. Everything is food, nothing is wasted. Eat food, poop, seed, eat food, poop, seed. I'm very sustainable. Fourth, she said, I'm incredibly entrepreneurial. Wherever I see an opening, I fill it with a plant or animal perfectly adapted to that niche. Uh, fifth, she says, I do believe in co-evolution. I'm incredibly heterodox and hybrid. There's nothing dogmatic about me. I put the right bees with the right flowers, the right trees with the right soils. I like to mix everything up. Nothing is dogmatic. And lastly, she said, I, I do believe in the laws of bankruptcy. I kill all my failures and take their energy I return them to the great manufacturer in the sky and then take their energy and use it to nourish my successes. My argument is the communities, the countries, and the political parties that most closely mirror Mother Nature's mechanisms for dealing with climate change are the ones that will thrive in the age of acceleration. And so just for fun, I took it one step further in that chapter and invented Mother Nature's political party. What if Mother Nature were running in this election? I won't go through the whole platform, but um, obviously it's a proxy for my own politics because I'm on some issues, I'm to the left of Bernie Sanders. I believe in the age of accelerations, we're going to need to strengthen our trampolines and safety nets. The world is going to be too damn fast for some people. I believe we should have single-payer health care. I don't understand if Sweden can do it and Singapore can do it, how we can't do it. But at the same time, I'm to the, left of the wall, to the right of the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I would abolish all corporate taxes. I'd replace them with a carbon tax, a tax on bullets, a tax on sugar, and a small financial transaction tax. I want to get radically, I want to get radically entrepreneurial over here to pay for the safety nets we're going to need over here. But in our system, if you're for safety nets, you're never for entrepreneurship. And if you're for radical entrepreneurship, you're never for safety nets. We don't let what should co-evolve to co-evolve. And that's why all our parties are blowing up. Our parties, the European parties, because these parties were basically designed to answer questions of the New Deal, the Industrial Revolution, the early IT revolution, and civil rights, both racial and gender. And I believe what political parties have to answer in the future are how you respond to the three accelerations, how you get the most out of them, and how you cushion the worst, and that will require a very different hybrid mix of ideas. Let me close by talking about uh, the realm of ethics 
and why that has to be reimagined as well. So that chapter in my book is called, Is God in Cyberspace? Best question I ever got on book tour. 1999, I'm up in Portland. I'm talking about my book, The Lexus and the Olive Tree. Guy stands up at question time, says, Mr. Friedman, is God in cyberspace? I said, ah, 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 I have no idea. And I felt like a complete idiot. I got home, I called my spiritual teacher, he's a rabbi, Tzvi Marks, I got to know him at the Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. He lives in Amsterdam, interesting guy, he's married to a Dutch priest. I called him up, I said, Tzvi, I got a question I've never had before. Is God in cyberspace? What should I have said? He said, well, Tom, you know, in our faith tradition, we have two concepts of the Almighty. One is biblical, one's post-biblical. So the biblical concept of the Almighty is that the Almighty, Almighty is Almighty. He smites evil, and he rewards good. And if that's your view of God, he sure isn't in cyberspace, which is full of pornography, gambling, cheating, lying, terrible talk, and now we know fake news. (laughs) But he said, fortunately, we have a post-biblical view of God that says God manifests himself by how we behave. So if we want God to be in cyberspace, we have to bring him there by how we behave there. So I put Svi's answer in the paperback edition of Lexus and the Olive Tree where nobody ever saw it. (laughs) And I forgot about it. So 20 years later, I'm working on this book, and I find myself suddenly retelling that story. I say to myself, why are you retelling that story all of a sudden? And it became immediately obvious to me because everything's moving to cyberspace where we do business, where we learn, where we get our news, where we find our dates, where we find our spouse, where we contact our friends and family. Everything's moving to a realm where we're all connected, but nobody's in charge. There's no police in cyberspace. And boy, didn't we see that in this election. Suddenly we saw fake news. Suddenly we saw uh, hacking from Russia of our election. Everything was happening in cyberspace, but that's a realm where we're all connected. But nobody is in charge. And therefore, what values prevail there is going to become an increasingly important issue. And at the same time, because of these amplified powers, individual makers and breakers are now becoming super empowered. And in an interdependent world, That's also scary. What values do they have? Because when it's a great time to be a maker, it's also a great time to be a breaker. When it's a great time to be IBM, it's also a great time to be ISIS. So what does that mean? What it means, friends, is we're actually standing at a moral intersection we have never stood at before as a human species. In 1945, we entered a world where one country could kill all of us. And if it had to be one country post-Hiroshima, I'm glad it was ours. I believe we're entering a world where one person will be able to kill all of us and where all of us will be able to fix everything. The same accelerating powers are creating a moral universe where one of us can kill all of us and all of us, if we put our mind to it, could feed, house, and clothe, and educate now every person on the planet. 
We have never stood at this intersection before. Because what does it mean? It means we have never been more godlike as a species. And if we are going to be godlike as a species, we sure all better have the golden rule. Or whatever version of it your faith has, and every faith has some version of it. I know what you're thinking. I gave this talk as the commencement address at Olin College of Engineering last May, this part of the talk. And I said to the parents, I know what you're thinking. You paid 200 grand so your kid could get an engineering degree. And there's a knucklehead commencement speaker lecturing about the golden rule. Is there anything more naive that we have to scale the golden rule? Well, I'm here to tell you tonight, as I told them, naivete is the new realism. Because I'll tell you what's really naive. Thinking we're going to be okay in a world with this much amplified power, where so much of our daily life is migrating to a realm where we're all connected and no one's in charge, if we don't scale the golden rule. So where does the golden rule come from? How do people get it? Well, there's just two ways that I know of. Strong families and healthy communities. That's where we learn to do unto others as we wish them to do unto us. Well, I'm not an expert on strong families. I hope I built one, but I wouldn't ever deem of lecturing anyone on that. But I do know something about a healthy community because I grew up in one. And that's where the book ends. The last two chapters are about the little town, little suburb really outside of Minneapolis called St. Louis Park, where I grew up, where my values were shaped. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. Uh, It was a freaky place. Uh, 
The short story is that in Minneapolis, all the Jews uh, lived on the north side of Minneapolis with African-Americans in the 40s and uh, early 50s. Minneapolis was the capital of anti-Semitism, in fact, uh, and then until Huber Humphrey became mayor, really cleaned it out of city government. After the war, the world opened up a little, and all the Jews, basically in a three-year period, migrate from the north side to one suburb, the one that didn't have redlining, St. Louis Park. And overnight, this suburb goes from 100% Protestant Catholic Scandinavian to 20% Jewish, 80% Protestant Catholic Scandinavian. If Sweden and Israel had a baby, it would be St. Louis Park, okay? <laughs> and I tell the story of how we all got to know each other and built an inclusive community. We, the frozen chosen, as we called ourselves, the Minnesota Jews, um, and these incredible uh, Swedes and Norwegians. And in this explosion between these neurotic Jews and these incredibly decent, pluralistic Scandinavians was built an amazing community. And I tell the story of my high school, Hebrew school, and community, because I basically grew up in the same decade and a half with the Cone brothers, Al Franken, Norm Ornstein, Michael Sandel, Peggy Ornstein, uh, Alan Wiseman, Dan Wilson, who wrote Someone Like You with Adele. We all basically grew up in the same time and place in this little suburb. This was not a neighborhood in the Upper West Side of New York. This is a one high school town in Minnesota. The Coen Brothers movie, A Serious Man, was about our Hebrew school and our little community. It was an amazing place to grow up, and it endowed all of us with a real civic ethic, because we all grew up watching politics work, and we all, in our own way, tried to bring it to the world. Sandel with communitarianism, Franken with his politics, Norm Ornstein with his theories, me with my journalism, the Coen Brothers with their movies, and, and many others. Last chapter of the book, I go back home 40 years later. Now my high school is 50% white Protestant Catholic, 10% Hispanic, 10% Jewish, and 30% Somali and African American. Because the same suburb that was ready to take the Jews took the Somalis. Well, ain't that now the story of America? Now the inclusion challenge is so much more difficult and challenging. But ain't that the story of America? And ain't that the story of the world. How are they doing? Got to read the book, but pretty good, actually. My friend Amory Lovins, the great physicist and my teacher on all things about physics and the natural world, likes to say, when people ask him, Amory, are you an optimist or a pessimist? And Amory always says, I'm neither, because they're just two different forms of fatalism. One says, everything will be great. One says, everything will be awful. Amory says, I believe in applied hope. I love that phrase, because what I see in Minnesota, in so many communities around the country, are a lot of people applying hope. Uh, they don't know whether it's all going to work, but there's an amazing number of people who want to get caught trying. And that's the source of my optimism. So to conclude, my book has a theme song. Uh, I thought, could I buy this? And actually, when you open the book, it would play this song like a <laughs> Hallmark card plays Happy Birthday. Uh, and the song is by... Uh, a wonderful country folk singer who I like, Brandy Carlisle. And the main refrain, the song is called, excuse me, the song is called The I, E-Y-E. And the main refrain is, I wrapped your love around me like a chain, but I never was afraid that it would die. You can dance in a hurricane, 
but only if you're standing in the eye. And I think what's going on in America today is we have a politician, because this hurricane, these are the three accelerations I'm talking about. And we have a politician whose strategy is to build a wall against the hurricane. My argument is that you have to build an eye, an eye that moves with the storm, draws energy from it, but creates a platform of dynamic stability within it. That's the healthy community where people can feel connected, protected, and respected. I think the great struggle in America for the next four years at least is gonna be between the wall people and the eye people, and my book is a manifesto for the eye people. Thank you very much. All right. You know, it's interesting. All the questions everybody gave me, everyone wants to talk. It's very contemporary in everybody's mind, obviously, about the presidential election. Uh, And it's interesting, almost without exception, every single question Mm -hmm. the audience offered me was around um, globalization issues of of what's happening with manufacturing and and are we going to get the jobs back, um, et cetera. But I want to go back. I mean, what you described in your presentation, what you described in the book is this hinge moment of sorts, yeah. right? We're going from something old to something new. Right. The industrial economy has run out of gas. It's an yeah. atrophy. Um, and as you talk about it, something's happening in the plumbing of the world. Technology, uh, economics, demographics, all shifting. Paralysis contrasted by rebirth. You were up in Seattle yesterday, and you know, we all read today, or at least some of us read, Amazon just came out with a fully automated grocery store putting literally a peril, potentially three and a half million workers that are cashiers. Um, That's AI, that's big data, the combinatorial nature of that technology. Uh, We've got a company founded right down the block here. Um, Travis comes along with an app and completely, you know, usurps the taxi cab industry. There's the paralysis contrasted by rebirth, right? Taxi cabs and and Uber uh, overnight. They bought a company, Auto, that just shipped 50,000 cases of beer in Colorado. Uh, They're a trucking company, and they're going after three and a half million people, coincidentally, that are truckers. I mean, how concerned should we be about this tech genie now being out of the bottle? I'm very concerned. I'm very concerned because um, it's happening too fast. Again, when people tell me this is not happening fast, nothing new, I say, really? Okay, talk to me in three years. Um, uh, So it's happening, I think, faster then our social technologies, right. this is a concept of my friend Eric Beinhacker at Oxford, because I really like that the idea they're physical technologies and they're social technologies, you know, that need to go with them. But if your physical technologies get way ahead of your, your, your social ones, you have a problem. So let me step back and, and tell you what I think the answer is, um, because the, the main thesis at the end of my book is that the proper governing unit for the 21st century, and you have a lot of experience in this, is not going to be the federal government. We still need it for national bank, for national security. It's not going to be this. The federal government is simply too slow now at adapting to this rate of change, too gridlocked. It's not going to be the single family because it's too frail, especially we have so many single parent families. They can't navigate these winds of change. My argument in the book is it's going to be the healthy community. And the healthy community that's close enough, nimble enough, there's not so much politics. Yes, there's left and right in San Francisco and Minneapolis, but there is, at the end of the day, no Democratic sewer, no, no Republican electricity. People, in the end, do tend to compromise. And so these communities are much more nimble at responding to the changes. So that's, that's one thing that gives me sucker. 
Um, the other is that, um, and the reason the book is called, I could have called this book, The World is Fast. Yeah, the world is flat, the world is fast, very cute. You know. um, uh, but um, uh, I, I didn't for a reason, uh, because the subtext of the book, Gavin, is that my belief that everything that matters most today, it's all the stuff you can't download. Yeah, well done. It's all the stuff you have to upload the old-fashioned way, mm-hmm. one human being to another. Mm-hmm. And um, what I have found in, in writing the book is um, how that human-to-human connection is becoming more important than ever, and I don't know how it's gonna happen, but I think that's gonna spin off millions of jobs we can't imagine. Mm -hmm. So uh, Gavin and I were talking before we came out about a quote in the book from our Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy. He's the Surgeon General of the United States, a really amazing doctor. And I was interviewing him, and we were talking, and he said, you know, what do you think is the most prevalent disease in America today? Is it heart disease? Is it cancer? Is it diabetes? And Vivek said, no, it's none of those. It's isolation. <laughs> I thought, wow, we live in the most connected age, you're telling me, and the biggest disease in America is people feeling isolated and disconnected. And I think there's going to be a huge amount of work around that. Um, we were at Thanksgiving this year with uh, our, our best friend's family. We go to Thanksgiving and back in Washington with them every year, and um, uh, their daughter is married to a guy who's a consultant for restaurants. So I just said to him, Daniel, what, what, what's new, what you're working on? He said, it's interesting, um, uh, I was approached by a company, um, uh, they have, a, I think it's called Paint It, um, where they have bars now where adults come to do paint by numbers. Um, and uh, um, <laughs> this is true, uh, you can Google it as they say. And, um, uh, and what it is, is really, it's really just about social connection. People come together in a bar, they paint by numbers, they have a drink. Now guess what? Um, I bet there's a lot of jobs now designing paint by numbers um, for adults. <laughs> um, and, um, and after you do that for a day, you're probably gonna need a massage. So um, uh, you're never going to see it coming. But what I always remind people, if horses could have voted, there never would have been cars, okay? Uh. And, um, uh, and so you will, you'll never see it coming. Right. And, and, and that's why the thing we actually have to trust in now, and it's the hardest thing politically to do, is to actually, to, you wanna make America great? You gotta make it great the way we always made it great, by being radically open, yeah. okay? Because when we're radically open, what happens? We get the signals first. We feel the heat and the changes first, and we attract the most high IQ risk takers. And this country, this city and this valley down here, it was built by high IQ risk takers. And as long as we do that, I think we will, it, it'll be okay. I do believe the transition is, of this one is gonna be really difficult, mm-hmm. and that's why I wanna work on my safety nets over here, and not just safety nets, but trampolines and education. Um, but I think my friend Dove Seidman calls the human economy, yeah. now that we're going into, you know, uh, he says we've moved from hands to heads to hearts. Mm. I think that economy is gonna be spilling out so many jobs in a country where the most prevalent disease is isolation. But I can't tell you what they are. One of the things that struck me in this book, I mean, you talked about it at the end, and it's not just the last chapter, you talk about pluralism, you talk about being connected and the golden rule and family, yeah. but it was throughout this book, you even, you quote your friend, Doug Simon, yeah. about a sustainable values versus situation. Right. I mean, there's a value laden. Yeah. 
I mean, this, this book, it struck me more than anything yeah. else. I mean, when, when was it obvious to you? I mean, when, you, when you're talking about sort of the hard sciences about globalization and technology, changing, you know, and this notion of hyperconnectivity, yeah. all this, where you, you realize that it's time truly, not just, you know, thank you for being late, yeah. but truly time to pause. Right. And thank you for joining us for this week-to-week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.